Kia ora koutou guys, good to see you again, good to be with you again as we uh, do another one of our podcasts, the Department of Conversation. Uh, this week is a bit, spe- uh, a bit special, a bit different I was meant to say. We are going to be talking to uh, Professor Robert Patman from the University of Otago. We often just have conversations around kind of life, the universe and everything, but today we're going to talk specifically about the midterms, which I'm sure you all know the results about now, uh, but we were doing this live as the results were still coming in. Interesting information, interesting stuff about Trump in here and the American political system in general as well. Now, um, as you know, if you've seen our video, and if you haven't seen our videos, head to YouTube and uh, just search for us and you'll see we're still looking for a permanent location, so we're bouncing around a little bit in Petri Dish at the moment. And this episode is filmed and recorded in Ombrelitos, which is the cafe in the bottom of the Petri Dish building, 8 Stafford Street if you're in Dunedin. Uh, Ombrelitos is a great little cafe, you should come check it out. So thanks to them for hos- uh, hosting us. If you hear some noises in the background like us drinking beer, etc., <laughs> etc., et uh, that's why. So uh, enjoy again Professor Robert Patman, University of Otago, as we talk American politics and the midterms. Live, Professor Robert Patman, thanks for joining us in the Department of Conversation. Thanks very much, Pat, for having me. Before we start, um, you're a doctor as well? Yeah. You have a doctorate? Yeah. So I was writing your name the other day. Is it Dr. Professor Robert, or is it Professor Doctor? How is it officially written? I was just wondering. um, When you become a professor, it's just a recognition that you sort of progress through the ranks. So when I started my career, I I had a PhD, Mm. doctor. So Mm. I was doctor. Uh, when I was a lecturer and then a senior lecturer and then you become next step up is an associate professor and then right. the full step up is a professor. So you don't use the doctor anymore really? In your, in your official really. capacity? Um, it, it's there I suppose but yeah most people sort of, I, I, I like to keep it really relatively informal. Uh, people I know will always obviously refer to me as Robert. Um, the media certainly when I have dealings with the media mostly refer to you as Robert, but when they first introduce you, Professor of International Relations. Yeah. Nice. And you have a specialist area mm. in American politics. Well, I teach US foreign policy, yep. um, and I, I also publish in that area. And, uh, you know, there's a tremendous link, Pat, between the domestic politics of a country and its foreign policy, the face that it presents to the world. And so I've naturally got an interest in what's happening in the US because it has big implications for the rest of the world, including New Zealand. So, yeah, what are they saying? When uh, America sneezes, the world catches a cold? Something yeah, like that? Yeah, I mean, I think Mr. Trump would probably like to believe that, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't think it's quite that uh, close. But it's certainly a very significant player internationally. And, uh, yeah, some of the things that Mr. Trump has done has already made quite a few inroads into our the way we see things in New Zealand. Well, we're live on Facebook and YouTube right now. Local time is seven minutes past six. Um, the polls in California have just closed. Yeah. Uh, we sometimes talk for 40 minutes or an hour normally. So around 7 o'clock tonight, the polls for uh, Alaska will close and then yeah. it will be all officially over. Oh, yeah. just so people know as well, we are broadcasting from Ombrelitos, a little cafe in uh, Dunedin. And Ty is bringing us our beers because why wouldn't we? Thanks, mate. Thank you. So um, what we like to do in the Department of Conversation is... Uh, have kind of casual conversations but not inane conversations sure. I mean sometimes they're inane maybe some of the points yeah maybe they're within inane um, but normally they're just kind of general conversations with interesting people sure. today obviously there's an, uh, a specific reason why we're talking yeah. because of the midterm elections 
So looking at the results right now, I think, can you flick it over into the Senate? Uh, I'm pretty sure that they've called the, called the race for, there you go, Republicans 51. They only needed 50. So they have won uh, the Senate. In fact, one of the interesting things about that was uh, the Democrats needed two and already the Republicans have gained three. Yes. So that's, I, th- I think that's probably going to be deemed as surprising that the Republicans have gained three. Yes, uh, although it was always given the, the structure uh, of the constituencies for the Senate, so to speak, it was always going to be a hard t- struggle for the Democrats to capture the Senate outright. Although, it's got to be said, uh, there were some very close contests, not least in Texas. Yeah, which Beto is, uh, O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke. Um, I understand he's been narrowly defeated. He was Just in- scroll down, Jason, onto Texas. Just hover over Texas so we can see the actual numbers. So, the, so uh, yeah, 50, 51 and a bit, 48 and a bit. Yeah, I percent. mean, at, at one stage he was ahead. Yeah. And uh, he has emerged, I think, as a, a political heavyweight on the Democrats' side. I think he's done a lot of good for the Democrats. Although he's lost, he was always taking on a formidable task. And he's impressed a lot of people. I mean, he's raised huge amounts of money in Texas to, make, to give that sort of performance for yeah. a Democrat. Uh, is terrific. I mean, he literally made Cruz fight very hard. And Cruz, of course, was a presidential contender against, for the Republican presidency. He was a, one of the people who threw his hat into the ring in 2016. One of about 20. <laughs> yes, and uh, before Mr. Trump completed his hostile takeover. Indeed. Um, it's interesting as well because uh, I guess the American system, you don't need to be a politician at all, let alone an incumbent politician to run for presidency. So I wonder if Beto O'Rourke has higher aspirations. I heard a story today that he was um, he was being asked by the Democratic Party to send his funding elsewhere yes. because they basically were saying you don't have a chance. Yeah. And he said, like hell, I'm going to give it a crack. And you've got to say, mm. 51, 49 or there, thereabouts and is a pretty been, good crack. And he's been in the he's House. proved of, his point. And he's been in the House of Representatives since 2012. The Senate would have been a nice step up for him. Yeah. Uh, but I think he... I think it's that, uh, you know, I don't think he's done himself any harm. And uh, I think uh, one of the things to come out of the, I think, the midterm elections in the United States today is it is a bit of a mixed picture for the Democrats, as you rightly say. They, they probably a bit disappointed with their performance with regard to the Senate. Yeah. I think they'll be reasonably pleased with their performance with regard to the House mm-hmm. of Representatives. It looks like projecting that to have a majority of about 15 so they will certainly have control, and that will change the dynamics um, of American politics. It will subject Mr. Trump to much more scrutiny yeah. um, than previously when the Republicans controlled both the House and the Senate. The other race we shouldn't forget about, where the Democrats have done quite well, was the governor's race. And I think uh, the latest, I may be out of date now, but Pat, but the latest take I had on that, round about 5.30, the Democrats had made a net gain of three in the... 30-odd contests. Just scroll across the top there. Fourth one across says governor. Keep going, keep going. Yep, have a click on that one. Uh, so, yep, Democrats net gain of four. Four, yep. At the so, moment. Yep. There's, still, there's still a few to go. Yeah, so that's a good performance for the Democrats. I think they've... Uh, I think one of the things that really strikes me, though, is that the Democrats, if they're going to build on this, they really have to make some hard decisions about leadership. They yeah. need... It's Nancy Pelosi. It's like... Um, <clears throat> Hillary Clinton was possibly the worst candidate they could have picked to run against, well, anyone, to be honest. But, mm. but Nancy Pelosi seems to be in that vein, unless the yeah. Democrats kind of go, she has to go because she is a divisive figure. 
mm. then who knows in four years' time. I do, and I, I, think, I think people like Pelosi and Hillary Clinton, who hasn't completely ruled out another bid for oh the... Oh, God. Quite, oh, hang on, I'm I, I, think, I, I, think, drink, I think, need a drink on that. Yeah, I think both Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton, uh, both given sterling service, I think it's time to make way... Uh, for fresh faces, not necessarily younger people, but people. I, I was one of the things that really impressed me watching the build-up to these elections. Pat was that uh, Bernie Sanders, who, nar- who got narrowly defeated by Hillary for mm-hmm. the nomination of the Democrats, um, I, he still is a formidable speaker. He spoke, uh, it, it, for example, I, I was watching him speak on behalf of Andrew Gillum, who unfortunately, for Andrew Gillum's point of view, lost, um, but. Uh, but you know he, he emerged. Um, uh, Sanders remains a formidable political operator, and uh, although he may be only a one-term prospect for presidency, the Democrats have a chance to look at Sanders. I mean, Sanders, in my view, continues to put his finger on the two issues which are really important for any candidate running up against uh, someone like Donald Trump. One is that. Sanders has argued for a long time that uh, big money dominates American politics, yep. which rules out a lot of talented people yep. in American society. And secondly, he continues to say that um, healthcare access should be a right, not a privilege. And he keeps making the point, to usually to standing ovations, that most developed societies do recognise that. So I think he's got quite a lot to offer intellectually. And uh, one of the things that surprised me, because I... I hadn't seen him really operate for a couple of years since um, he was running for the Democratic presidential um, nomination and, and, and was unsuccessful, ultimately. Um, was he's retained his sharpness and his ability, I think, to affect and touch audiences. And that's interesting. Uh, but I do think one to look out for is someone we mentioned before, Beto O'Rourke. Yeah. He, I think they do have to either... It might be a combination of someone like Sanders and O'Rourke, a joint ticket with O'Rourke really hoping, you know, um, to be on the ticket as a vice president in the f- for the first four years and then perhaps with Sanders perhaps stepping down. But maybe, uh, you know, the Democratic Party should be more ambitious and look to give someone like O'Rourke a poss- consideration for the presidential contest in 2020. One thing is quite clear. In the last two years... The Democratic Party has been pretty rudderless and leaderless, and Mr. Trump has got away with a lot. I know the Republicans controlled both the Senate and the House of Representatives, but nevertheless, you would have expected more from senior figures in the Democratic Party, particularly on some of the issues which many Americans have found humiliating. And, um, you know, he... He's done a series of controversial things, which really he hasn't really been fully held to account for. I think part of it is um, perhaps you see that between their corporate interests in America, the left and the right maybe aren't so far apart. They've got Mm. similar donors. They've got similar places they go after politics to earn money. But there is that wave coming through. It's funny talking yeah. about Bernie Sanders. Gosh, he must be mid-70s now. Yeah, I think he'll be 76 in 2020. So he would be an, an octogenarian president if he was to run and win within that term. Mm. Um, think about him as a new wave at that age. But the but, people but intellectually, him, I think he is. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because a lot, a lot of the young people are, you know, one of the things I found fascinating watching the struggle for the nomination of the Democratic Party 
in 2016 was the fact that Bernie was Bernie Sanders was drawing huge yeah. numbers of young people, and I actually think a lot of them became quite disenchanted and almost demoralised by the fact that it was quite clear the Democratic Party establishment had no time for Bernie. Yeah, and they, they basically screwed him out of a, a fierce yeah. fight. And I think it would have been a magnanimous gesture. We can always be wise in hindsight, but I think when Hillary got the nomination, Hillary Clinton, she probably should have invited Bernie to be her running mate then. I think that would have galvanised a lot of people. Mm. But anyway, it's easy to be wise off the event. It is. Um, the other thing is the House, if we can flick over onto those House results, although I noticed they um, there was projections made when the Democrats had 140 seats and the Republicans had 150, yeah. that the Democrats had won. So they obviously projected it well out, and now it looks like they're going forward. And I guess you could say it's not confirmed yet, but it's projected that they're going to win, yeah. which means now, and I thought maybe we could do this, we could explain a little bit how the system works as well. So the House is going to be uh, Democrat, the Senate is going to be Republican, mm. and obviously the President is going to be re Republican. Yes. Um, when laws get passed, they have to go through all three stages of government? Yes. And that's going to be the problem for Mr Trump? Yes, Mr Trump's going to... Uh, let's be quite clear, he's not exactly flavour of the month even amongst the Republicans. Yeah. And um, nevertheless, he won the nomination and, for, you know, he, he... Many Republicans will be quite impressed by the fact that he's come out of the midterm elections by managing to hold... Um, the Senate. It's been, Trump has dominated the midterms. He's mm -hmm. been fully involved. He's made, in retrospect, quite decisive interventions in a number of key Kent Senate seats. I mean, when he, he particularly intervened in the seat we were talking about, Texas, he yep. went to support someone he used to call lying Ted Cruz. And he talked about how ugly his wife was. And he said that his father yeah. was involved in the assassination of James. But now all is forgiven. <laughs> My goodness. And he did say that uh, Beto O'Rourke would turn Texas into a, another Venezuela. And I don't know if that had any impact. It probably didn't. But uh, he did. He has been a polarising force. And I think that may have helped to somewhat dampen down some of the lukewarm feelings that many Republicans have. But on the actual management, what does this mean for the White House? Mm. I think it means um, that Mr. Trump will be going more on the defence rather than being on the offence. I mean, one of the great things, one of the things that's really noticeable about Mr. Trump's first two years is that not only has he rescinded a lot of the measures that the Obama administration put in place, uh, but he's signed a lot of what's called executive... Um, orders, and um, he's been on the front foot. Uh, he's dominated the debate to some degree on immigration. I think what we will see now um, is that some of the what Democrats might see as conflicts of interest and less than scrupulous behaviour in office may be called out a lot more. Mm. Um, you know, you could say if you're cynical that Mr. Trump may actually quietly welcome the Democrats having control. Why so? Well, because sometimes um, it, it's a ready-made sca scapegoat for a president. They can say, oh... Oh, right, so I yeah, can't yeah, do anything now because of these Yeah, the narratives yeah, about yeah, the yeah. Democrats blocking everything being yeah, unconstructive. Yeah. You know, many people have forgotten this, but back in the 94, when Bill Clinton lost control, um, when he was president of, 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 you know, the Congress, um, it was seen as a major setback, and it was a setback. But he was very adroit at playing the president who would be doing good things, but is being frustrated. 
right. line. So, uh, it, it, nevertheless, overall, I think it's bad news, particularly because there's a number of things which are going to happen in the not-too-distant future where, uh, with a greater voice in the House of Representatives, the Democrats can make a real difference. I'm thinking, for example, the, the, the investigation led by special counsel Robert Mueller into mm -hmm. whether there was collusion between mm -hmm. the Trump campaign and the Russians. That report um, will be out in the not-too-distant future. And uh, I, as I say, I think he'll be subject to much more scrutiny in that sense. And uh, also, Mr. Trump has initiated a number of measures, and we don't know how they're going to work out. For example, he's initiated the use of tariffs against countries, uh, well, the EU and also China. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's unclear exactly how that's going to work out. And with greater representation in the House of Representatives, you know, Mr. Trump may have some of the weaknesses, perceived weaknesses of his policies more forcibly pointed out than otherwise would be the case if the Republicans were running the show. Yeah, so it's interesting how you put that. So this could work in Trump's favour. He's been saying for the past two years how terrible the Dems are at blocking when they've had no power. Yes. And now they've got some power, the narrative may continue and may And yes, may and, aid he, him. and he continues to blame Mr. Obama for many of the problems that, <laughs> that are now occurring on his watch. Uh, and, he, you know, let's be quite clear. One of the interesting things about the midterms is that although, as I say, it's a mixed picture, in many respects, Mr. Trump can make the case that he's done relatively well in difficult circumstances. Two things I think has really played a part in the midterms and helped Trump. One is the American economy is very strong. It's mm -hmm. growing at 3.5% and unemployment is its lowest level, I think it's 3.7, since the late 60s. And um, that does count heavily, you know, in, when, the way people vote. And the second issue which I really wanted to get to is the health care issue. Yep, yep, yep. And that, I think, is something um, is, you know, Mr. Trump has in the process of trying to um, abolish Obamacare, affordable health care. And uh, he did promise a replacement. That's going to be an interesting dynamic in American politics because I think this could really hurt him. Um, he hurt him try, trying to abolish it could hurt him? Yeah, I think so, because right. I think a lot of people... Uh, first of all, didn't always realise, and I don't. I'm not trying to be condescending here, but I, I, I think some people in the United States didn't make the You know, they they thought that Obamacare was somehow different from affordable health care, where the right. two are the same. And um, it, you know, we are talking about the removal of health cover from upwards of 20 million people, which is significant. And uh, with a greater democratic representation, that is one issue the Democrats can rally on. I mean, it's not, you know, it, it's an issue that I think it's very interesting that a number of polls were carried out, and healthcare was the issue, not the economy, mm. which many people, high, 43% of Americans, and that went across the board, not just Democrats, but Republicans as well, believe healthcare is a, a very important issue which needs attention. What I don't understand in the American system, and it's interesting because it's sort of, I guess, in every system on some level, is the spin that's then believed absolutely without question. Mm. And healthcare is one of those ones that I always think about because I go, we've got public health in New Zealand, yeah. but we also have insurance. Yeah. 
And it seems that the narrative in America is if we go down this path, then all the private healthcare is gone and we'll turn into Venezuela. Yet, yeah. I mean, my I mum mean, my passed away three or four weeks ago uh, from motor neuron disease. Or in here Yeah, it, 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 it is what it is. Um, and she had the best care, mm. didn't pay for a single thing, including things like electric wheelchairs and, and beds for her home and that kind of stuff. And it's a system that, yes, there can be holdups. You know, you hear stories about people who need cancer treatment going to Sydney and that sort of thing. But if you really need it, it's there. And if you've got the money, you can get private coverage. I don't know why that narrative is not known by all Americans. Because it feels like so often in the political scene, there's such a lot of bullshit and just straight out lies in the American system. But then the supporters buy it so heavily. They don't actually then go, well, what's the truth here? And it flummoxes me, because I know every politician does it, but it seems to be particularly active in America. Yeah, but I think the short answer to your question, Pat, and I think it's a really important question, is US exceptionalism. This is this informal ideology that America was the world's first democracy. It's the shining city on the hill, mm. um, as they see it. And US exceptionalism, every country believes it's exceptional. We in New Zealand believe we're exceptional. But what's different about U.S. exceptionalism is that the U.S. believes not only is exceptional and it's got distinctive characteristics, but it believes politically it is an exemplar for the rest of the world. It believes that is the model. Now, to give you an example how deep this runs, mm. um, when Bernie Sanders said to his advisers when he was running for the nominee at the beginning of his campaign, when he was unknown, this senator from Vermont in May 2015 and early 2016, he was having a discussion with his advisors, and they were a very small group. I'm going to raise the issue of health care and its deficiency in the United States. They said, Bernie, but don't make any foreign comparisons. And he broke, the, he broke the glass ceiling on that issue. He said, I'm going to. I said, I don't mind if it has adverse consequences. I think this is a really important issue. So Sanders, in his campaign, he started making comparisons between the deficiencies of the American healthcare system the excellent publicly owned healthcare system in Germany, for example, mm -hmm. and Norway and other countries. And he got standing ovations and his advisors were bewildered because in the past, comparisons with other countries is a bit of a no-no. And I think one of the reasons, coming back to your question, why aren't Americans more conscious that their system in healthcare terms is very expensive and also probably not the most efficient. Most expensive per capita in the world. Yeah. yeah. And why aren't they more critical is because I think to some extent this informal ideology that because it's in America it's the best. Right. For example, We're number one. when Mr. Obama tried to introduce affordable health care with, you know, they managed to keep a straight face in the process but he was accused of moving towards the failed socialist system that the British use, the national health care system. Because that's terrible. NHS yeah, yeah. is just uh, shocking, isn't it? Uh, and so, you know, I, I think this idea, I, I think the other thing is that capitalism is deeply rooted in the United States, as is individualism, mm -hmm. the belief that you can achieve anything, providing that big government doesn't get in the way. So I think another sort of obstacle for people who want to improve the health care system, make it more responsive to people in need, is that this is seen as creating a big nanny state that you know yeah. big government big government is the name big government what you know we wouldn't even use that term in new zealand or 
we just accept the state can do some things the private sector can't always do. But it does seem to be, you know, it does seem to be a problem in the United States. And there is a real reluctance for the United States to look at examples from overseas and say, oh, yeah, that's a good, let's, let's use that model. You don't hear that much in the US. It's funny, I used to have lots of conversations with people about big government versus small government. And I would always say to them, I don't give a crap. I just want better government. And sometimes more uh, government involvement is better for whatever that need is. Sometimes it's not so good. So I think that the thing to focus on is better government for everybody. And yeah, it's maybe it's playing up some stereotypes that are unfair of Americans, but they do seem, a lot of them, some of them, do seem quite ill-informed as to the realities of the world that could be, like the classic example is all those um, blue-collar workers in the Rust Belt voting for Trump, who ultimately is putting in policies in place that are going to work against them. Yes. But, but, but then mm-hmm. even after he puts those policies in place, like let's say tariffs on steel, they're still like, you know, Donald Trump, he's our answer and the Democrats are going to turn us into Venezuela. I just don't get it. Well, I think part of the message that Mr. Trump has said to blue-collar workers is that America is the greatest country in the world if only it acts like it. And with me as president, it will become great again. Right. And one of the difficulties with Mr. Trump's position, which is not immediately evident, but there's two major difficulties. Firstly, um, no country in the world can go it alone anymore. 9-11 showed that. Even the most powerful country in the world was vulnerable to... 19 suicidal hijackers. Yeah, with, with box cutters. Yeah, who weren't even from a state. Mm. The, you know, one of the things you, it really strikes you is that when you look around the world, um, all countries, big and small, they're facing problems which do not respect territorial boundaries. Whether we're talking the economy, the environment, or security. Mm-hmm. Mr. Trump's not talking those terms. He's really saying, part of his appeal is it's, it's nostalgic. He's He's if you like, he's part of his appeal, both to uh, people who are well-placed financially and those who are not so well-placed, is that we can, we've been weakened in recent decades because of disastrous presidents. And we've been weakened, America's become ripped off by the rest of the world. He depicts America as a big victim that's been an altruistic player who the rest of the world has used, mm-hmm. and he's gonna end that, he's gonna stop that ripping off. And that has a certain, you know, for people who feel their jobs have been outsourced, et cetera, et cetera. What he's not mentioning is that, you know, if you look in the top 50 corporations of the world, 38 to 40 are American who do very nicely, thank you, out of this process called globalization. That's one thing. The second thing, so what I'm saying to you is you can make these appeals about taking back control, but it will become evident, I believe, certainly by the end of his first term, that in reality, the world has moved on. We've already seen, for example, Harley-Davidson, yeah. in order to avoid the effects of a tariff war, have moved part of their manufacturing business to Thailand so they can continue to export to the EU without incurring huge tariffs. Because they were also getting a double hit. They were getting tariffs on yeah. the steel on the way in and yeah. then tariffs for their product going back to the yeah. EU. So that's one thing, uh, that the world actually, whether Mr. Trump likes it or not, is much more interconnected. Uh, And also, you know, we talk about trade. He keeps saying, we will assert ourselves in relations between China and ourselves and the EU, these countries ripping us off. But, you know, trade is no longer conducted just by two parties. Mm. If, you know, we've got a watch on or a mobile telephone we're using, it may have been put together in 14, 15 countries. 
which in effect it's not just that you know when American exports go to China and vice versa many of those products have not just been exclusively built in one of the two countries they've been assembled in many other countries so you know in a sense it's a much more complicated scenario the second thing is and what I've taken out of both the midterms and the 2016 election is a huge generation gulf now developing between people um, the millennials who voted in larger numbers this time around, it would appear, and you know the the post sixty generation, mm -hmm. and this is a, a simplification. Of course, there'll be people in their seventies and the eighties who have completely different views from Mr. Trump on this issue of globalization and whether America can sort of uh, deglobalize to its own interest. Um, but on the whole, what strikes me is quite significant is that when people like Sanders and Beto O'Rourke have made the case for a fairer society uh, where money is not the determinant of whether a person can run for political office, they've got a tremendously positive response. And I think it's partly because many younger people view the world in a very different way. I mean, after all, they're very um, able and, uh, to use technology and see and operate almost in a borderless world to some degree. Well, so, I, guess, I guess with the internet and with you know social media and all those things, it is a borderless world. It is. It's, it's like, I mean, it's amazing to me, uh, even on an interpersonal level, you know, people who are now finding partners and stuff from beyond, whether it's the border of their city or even the border of their country, that it is really just a, a, a becoming that global village that everyone's talked about for the past 20 or 30 years. Yeah, and I think... Uh, one of the things that will run up against Mr. Trump in the long term, certainly by, I think, by 2020, is that it may become apparent some of the promises made about deglobalizing the world and, ma and making, pushing America first, they may not be deliverable. You know, America's 4% of the world is a very powerful country, but there's plenty of other players in that system. And also none of those players, even America, can control the international arena. But then the question would be, as Trump did so well in the last election, controlling the narrative, if that does happen, will the narrative be, you need to get me back in because the Democrats have caused this now that they have some power, mm. or will the public look at Trump and blame him for that? And that's, I guess, maybe that could be the next election kind of campaigning. Well, I, I, I think it's a really good point you've raised, Pat, because... I think part of the narrative behind the midterms, and I suspect it's going to develop even further in the next uh, presidential election in 2020, has been a battle or competing visions of patriotism. Um, and I think Mr. Trump's vision of America first, um, which by definition means that other countries won't be first, sure, um, and also uh, tax breaks for the very wealthy, um, a reluctance to make a commitment to cover healthcare in a comprehensive fashion. Mm -hmm. I think um, some of these promises, and also some of the promises um, to reassert American greatness by acting unilaterally, will not work. Already, I mean, America has withdrawn from the what was called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I think it's now called the Comprehensive and Progressive Pacific Partnership. Uh, it's it's unilateral withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accords, mm -hmm. 
and also the withdrawal from Iran nuclear deal. In each case, those agreements, although very weakened by American withdrawal, these agreements haven't collapsed. And I think that cumulatively could have an impact on how effective or how deliverable some of the promises he's made. Although then, you know, um, political person X, Mr O'Rourke, whoever it's going to be, who is the next president, yeah. then just calls all those people the first day and goes, I want to sign back up again. So it may not affect America too much in the long run. Well, I think um, the challenge is we've heard Mr Trump's definition of patriotism. He calls his enemies, particularly in the media, enemies of the state. Mm. Um, I think the challenge for the Democrats is to develop an alternative but robust narrative of patriotism, one which uh, American values about human rights and about inclusion. This is a country built on immigration. Totally. Trump's own family reflect that. And it says it on the, on the, you know, the Statue of Liberty, giving yeah. your tired, your weak, your yeah. broken, whatever the words are, yeah. yearning I, to be free. So I think, you know, in a sense, Mr. Trump, he can energise the Democrats into developing, instead of being on the defensive and, and, and trying to split the difference, maybe setting out an alternative definition of what it means to be a good American citizen in the 21st century. I sometimes hear, and... and you know, without stereotyping everybody, it, it is often someone like a Trump supporter or someone who is a, you know, a significant conservative person on the right. And I think there's this line that goes from um, being patriotic, patriotism, to nationalism, and you end up in fascism. And I wonder on that linear, how many of those people are in that nationalistic, and I don't mean white national, I mean that nationalistic stage, and is there a danger going down this path that they keep moving on into that you know continuum, that linear, end up being something completely different with a dictator rather than a president? I, I, I think it's a possibility, but I don't think it, it's a strong possibility. I, I think a lot, I mean, this is another reason, you know, in sport we often say you're only as good as your opponent allows you to be. Right. Politics is the same, really. And Mr. Trump hasn't faced too much opposition, not concerted opposition. I mean, he, many of the controversies have been self-made. He's had uh, totally. run-ins with lots of his members of his cabinet and his government. The turnover of his staff has been incredible. You, you, would, have, you would have thought that a, ambitious um, Democrats would have been all over this like a rash because he's presented ample opportunities for people to really make a, an impact. So why, why do you think they haven't been? I mean, I agree with you. I think that I think about the next election and I think, OK, so Trump running, fine. And I think, who is his opposition? And I, and I think if Bernie Sanders had been against him at the last election, Bernie Sanders would be president now. But I think, man, he's getting old. Yeah. Uh, no disrespect, but he's getting old. Oh, he is. So really, who is the front runner? And I, I can't see someone. I don't know. I guess, mm. I guess I could also say two years out from the previous election, I wouldn't have said, oh, Donald Trump is the front runner. So, you know, that is maybe, you know, uh, something at least to think through. But... Who from that group of Democrats now is going to stand up and go me? Well, that's a, yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. Or will it be an Oprah Winfrey? I mean, she said no, but that kind of person. Yeah. But one thing we do know, um, Pat, is that if you look at the emergence of Barack Obama, mm -hmm. uh, he came from a, a position of virtual obscurity as a junior senator. Yep. 
he was already highly regarded in the Democrats. And that's why I drew parallels with Beto O'Rourke yep, and, okay. and Obama. In the case of uh, O'Rourke, of course, he hasn't been successful in his Senate contest, but he's still in the House of Representatives. Mm. And he's now highly regarded. He's become a national figure. Yeah. He's won national and international recognition fighting. You know, Ted Cruz may be ridiculed sometimes by because of his politics being extreme right, etc. But he is a formidable debater. He's one of the most able people in the Republican Party. And so that was no mean feat to take Cruz to a close decision. So I think O'Rourke may be someone we should keep our eyes on. But there are other talented people out there. One of the things that seems to be frustrating for, I think, non-Americans looking outside and wanting to see things improve is that the American political the party system is decentralised to some degree. And they don't really get focused until there's the prospect of a presidential election. And that doesn't normally occur until the midterms are over. Mm. So what we may now see is a much more concerted effort to come up with credible leaders who can put up a strong fight in 2020. It's such an interesting situation, though, the presidential campaign. After uh, Obama won his second term... I went, well, the Republicans have lost the, the female mm. vote. They've lost the women vote. Sorry, they've lost the female vote. They've lost the youth vote. And they've lost the minority vote. Mm. They're not going to be in the presidential seat again for decades. <laughs> and then the very next time, I was like, how, how did this happen yeah. again? It's, it's such an interesting animal. Yeah, but I think, I think there was a set of circumstances in 2015, 2016, when Mr. Trump emerged. We shouldn't overlook the fact that Mr. Trump, although he has a sort of fundamentalist support amongst some people, that they will support him come what may, yep. and they buy into his conspiracy theories, that America's you know, the victim and that the deep state is yep. operating against Mr. Trump. He even presents himself as an anti-establishment figure, which is laughable in many respects, <laughs> but we won't go into that. Um, you know, a lot of people buy into that. But there, there was, so there was, if you like, a hardcore base, which he... He's very careful to keep nurturing. But there was also, I think, about 20% of the American people who supported him, maybe 15%, who were instrumental voters, who were genuinely looking for a fresh face. Right. And they were tired of the legacy candidates like Clinton and Bush. And therefore, I think many people voted, some people voted for Mr. Trump in the hope that this, what they saw at the time as a highly accomplished business person, could actually break the logjam, produce a fresh approach, um, drain the swamp. So, to use so, they're, so they're thinking, if nothing else, at least this will shake things up a bit and yeah. get away from I, the, I think, the norm. Yeah, I think many people are deep, I think many Americans remain deeply alienated from the political system. That's why they have quite low participation rates in the election. And one of the things that we shouldn't overlook is that compared with other democracies, you know, the participation rate is very, very low. It's incredibly difficult to vote in American, some, some, a number of American states. But following the midterms, uh, there's been considerable concerns about voter suppression. I heard one of the states today had, um, you know, voting outlets with no power and no lights, and yeah. that was being sold as this has been done on purpose to suppress the vote. Yeah. And the other thing is we had an incredible situation in Georgia where the, <laughs> the um, Governor Kemp effectively initiated 
an inquiry into cybercrime by his democratic opponent. And which is a clear conflict of interest. If you're engaged in an electoral contest, you shouldn't yeah. be engaging that sort of thing. But um, the Democrats have to work with the system. But what I, I think is striking is that the Democrats, I think, do have to develop an agenda to make American politics more accessible to more people. Well, and also what, what, what the right does very well is get on message. Yeah. And they and, and you know and Trump was the best at it you know build the wall lock her up you know they yeah. have a way of doing it make it mega make America great again yeah. he, he was maybe an extreme version but in general the right seemed to be a cohesive unit mm. and the best example of that maybe Jay you can Google it is when Ted Cruz had just been annihilated by Trump you know told that his father was a murderer and his wife was ugly there's a photo of him online somewhere where he's doing telephone polling for Trump. And he looks like the most depressed, most forlorn, sad man there has ever been. But in the in the long run, he was on message. And he there's a photo of him somewhere, and it's got a picture of him. He's actually literally on the phone doing phone polling for yeah. for uh, for Trump. And honestly, he looked like he was about to commit suicide. It was just the the most depressing photo. But he's on the right. And he got on message. And the left seems to be where it's fractured. The left seems to be off message or different messages or not able to be as cohesive as the right. And as you're saying, it's like the narrative. The, the left needs to have that clear, I'm not saying three-word lines like Trump did, but that clear narrative that everyone's on board with to say, mm. this is us now. We're moving forward. Because that's what the right does. I mean, I talked about this in the weekend with Jeremy Elwood. For the last 30 years, America's been a, a left-wing country. There's only been one, um, one political year, which is the second term of Bush, that they've won the popular vote. Mm. Which means there's something that they are, they favour the left over the right, but the left is a shambles. It's a shambles, I don't say everywhere, but a lot of places in the world, there is a, a chance that the right will be more organised and more ordered and more ready to go, and the left will be a little bit in disarray. Yeah, and I think... The Democrats, um, commentators like Dr. Jonathan Simon and others, have pointed out to the the breaches of electoral law, the irregularities that go on, the suppression of votes, and the Democrat leadership has been very reticent to call it out. And um, the reason was that perhaps, and it is, that the Democrats have used that system to win. Mr. Obama did it, and maybe they feel that, that you know, they don't want to upset the apple core too much. But I think what many ordinary citizens would look for for these for the Democrats to be a lot more robust. Yeah. And uh, let's face it, if people are cheating, let's, let's you know not pull any punches here. Cheating's cheating in a sporting contest. If someone cheats, you expect the contest to be rerun at the very least. Yeah. You normally expect one party to be disqualified that's caught cheating. I think one of the things that alienated people from politics is that um, it's not just that politicians rewrite their own rules to suit themselves, but also their opponents often do not fully hold them to account. And, and I, as I, you and, say... And I think that makes people very cynical. I, as you say, one of the things that I find most frustrating in politics everywhere in the world, including in New Zealand, is when the narrative changes depending on what they've got. So those mm. in power... Well, I mean, the perfect example is, um, you know, the Supreme Court. 
you know, the, the Republicans blocked the Supreme Court mm. for the last 10 months of Obama. Yes. Yet then when they're told there's a midterm election coming up, we shouldn't vote for a Supreme They're like, well, of course we should. You know, and that happens everywhere. The hypocrisy on both sides where they flip yeah. and change. And John Stewart, when he used to run The Daily Show, was the best at that. Yeah. And you'd see someone literally say the complete opposite I mean, someone said the other day, well, I saw a Ted Cruz one when he was talking about, I'll have to check out the Constitution on that. I think Trump talking about pardoning himself. And then they showed a clip of him from years earlier talking about how he was a constitutional expert. You know, so it basically, and one thing he mm. played dumb, but previously when it was, a, he was a constitutional expert. <laughs> that is the thing that frustrates me most about all politics, New Zealand, America, everywhere. It's ridiculous. And what I was going to say is maybe they don't put up a fight because they realise that there's millions of hours of video of them doing exactly the same thing and they'll get called hypocrisy by it. Yeah, I, I, I think um, one of the skills in politics is actually a capacity to lead on an issue and try to explain it and not always you know, test what way the wind is blowing. Yep. And I think sometimes politicians in the past have gone for what they see as a safe option. In the Democrats' case, keeping their head down is about voter suppression in places like Georgia and mm -hmm. elsewhere. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, politicians sometimes underestimate the importance of taking a stand, um, particularly when it protects the rights of the many and not the few. Uh, I think that's really important. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be a very interesting time between now and the presidential election. A lot could happen in American politics. And... Um, the Democrats clearly have, I think there will be some satisfaction. They've got control of the House. They've made progress, uh, some good four games at the governor's level. Um, but plenty to play for. And I think they've, the things we've been discussing, they've not only got to get, I think, a leadership team in place. Yeah. But they also need, I think, a more coherent narrative than they've had. And I think those people, I'm always impressed by people who have that narrative and stick by it whether I agree with him or not. And the person mm. that always comes to mind in New Zealand politics when I talk about this is Sue Bradford. You know, like her or hate her, she stuck by that message no matter where she was in politics and what she believed. Mm. And Bernie Sanders is a bit like that, I think. He's got his message, you find it very difficult. Like when he was up against Hillary Clinton and there was all the, um, you know, release your details about how much he got paid for making speeches to the big banks. I'll tell you how much I got paid, nothing, because I've never made one. You know, he's he's... His narrative stays the mm. same. He sta he's the same in all these positions. And that's the politician you want. Yes, uh, although, I mean, I think one of the reasons that Sanders struck a chord was, in a sense, he was tapping into something that which was not getting much airtime or right. discussion. Uh, no, the Democrat leadership under President Obama and also under... President Clinton, neither of them really gave much airtime to the fact that big money was dominating politics and it was impossible to really run for office unless you were a, a millionaire or unless you had the means to raise the money from millionaires, which yeah. compromised your own agenda. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, but, um, so. I heard, it might have been on CNN, it might have been on Fox, I'm not sure. I was watching this morning before the results came out and they said... You know, whispers in the White House, my sources in the White House say, if um, the Republicans lose power, they will say, historically, this is what happens. Yeah. If the Republicans keep power, 
Trump will say it's uh, it's because of my agenda and and the country is telling me that's what's what they want to do. Seeing they kind of have a bob in each court, yeah, they've won, they've they've improved in the Senate, they're going to lose the House. What do you think the response is going to be from Trump? Where's he going to go? I think Trump will, in his usual modest fashion, claim some credit for retaining the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, and blame someone else for losing the House. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Um, but uh, I, I don't think, you know, I, I don't think Mr. Trump is capable of being a magnanimous unifying figure. Right. I mean, some presidents might actually take stock and say, oh, the Democrats have, you know, exit polls, for example, showed that uh, 39% of Americans disapprove of Mr. Trump's leadership. Yeah. Only 26% of Americans approve of it. Yeah. Now, that allied to Democrats' control of the House may lead some presidents to say, well, maybe I should be more of a unifying figure, but I can't see him doing that. Yeah. And um, he's confounded everyone uh, in the first two years. He's an in-your-face person who is always right. <laughs> and... Um, he won't release his tax returns, but no one's demanding it of him. And, you know, it, it, it's very... He's also, he makes a virtue of being unpredictable. Um, you know, to be fair to him, he has had some successes. I mean, the economy is going well. And um, that's not entirely his doing. I was going to say, because then the conversation comes out, is the economy doing well because... Um, Trump is a genius in this area or when you look at the graphs from the last 10 years is it just a continuation off on what has been happening so yes things are improving but they're on the same trajectory for the last 10 yeah. years yes since the end of 2009 America has been recording steady growth yeah slow growth but it was likely at some point to gather momentum so I think in that sense he's the beneficiary of the cleaning up of the mess by President Obama, the mess that Obama faced. I mean, many people forget this. When Mr. Obama came to office in January 2009, for the first two months, 1.6 million Americans lost their jobs. 800,000 in the first month, 800,000 in the second month. So he had to take a lot of measures to deal with that situation. It was an unenviable legacy, uh, an economic, a global financial crisis, which he inherited, plus wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm. Now. Um, that was a tough situation to face. Uh, but coming back to Mr. Trump, um, I, think he, I think he'll see this as vindication. I think he will interpret Really? Well, I think so, yes. I, he's, he, but he's got a huge problem now. And as we look at it at uh, five to seven local time, Democrats on 195 to 181, 218 for control. Sounds like a sports game, doesn't it? Um, he's partly screwed, though, isn't he? Because if you're going to go through legislation now... How can he, I mean, other than he's deluded, I'm not saying he is, but that, that thing being, I've lost but the he house. But he can take executive measures which don't inquire uh, the legisla- legislation. Well, see, this, this, and this is the thing that frustrates me. He was the biggest um, critic of Obama using executive, executive orders. Yeah. It, he's done more, it's like the whole thing, playing golf, and he's played more golf than any other person. Yeah. I just don't get how people don't see that in America, or the people who are voting for him don't see that. Or they go, yes, Obama, executive orders, terrible person. Oh, our man's in, executive orders, amazing, because that's what we want. Well, as I say, I think it is a, I think to some extent, 
I think Mr. Trump does two things very well. First of all, he exploits what we've described earlier as US exceptionalism. Yep. And he plays into that. He says, I'm the guy for America to be the best and most effective country in the world. And in a sense, there's a certain willingness to go along with that. But I think the second thing is, he's a very polarizing figure. And I know I'm stating the obvious here, but I mean, there's, he doesn't pull any punches. He's shameless. Um, and in a sense, um, it, it seems to me that he thrives on people trying to tiptoe around him. He needs robust opposition. Right. Uh, and whether he gets it or not is another matter. So far, he hasn't really had it from the, hasn't had that sort of uh, resistance from the Democrats. Just Jace has just found a graphic, if you bring that up, Jace. Uh, Trump on, uh, what is he, on track to have more executive orders than any other president mm. in the past 50 years. <laughs> Look at Obama, that second line down compared to him. It's ridiculous. Well, well one trend, Pat, may be with the control the Democrats' newfound control of the House, that, that may give momentum even more. Yeah, so when he has an executive order, it still has to be signed off, is it, by the Senate? Because uh, no. be, executive orders can be blocked, though. Yes, they can. Well, um, I think it's unlikely. But, you know, it, it quit, clearly, um, it, be, I don't think Mr Trump would want to overdo it if he's sensible, because you... But he has used, as you quite, you know, that graphic showed, uh, executive orders quite excessively, often to rescind previous legislation right. um, without always replacing it, okay. which means that you've got, you know, a, a sort of unsatisfactory situation. But, uh, yeah. So we're coming up to seven o'clock local time, which will probably let you go home. Um, just before we head off, though, seeing we have been very, very much talking about obviously the reason we're here is the midterms yeah. and stuff. Um, taking the House will make life more difficult for him, but there are ways around that for Trump. Yeah. Does this mean anything, does taking the House for the Democrats, does this mean anything on a global scale? Does it mean anything even though you're specifically for New Zealand in the political world? I think it could do because it, it makes a difference, I think, Pat, because issue, you know, in politics, whether it be American or New Zealand politics, it's not often what is your manifesto or your agenda that counts. It's how you react to unanticipated events. Mm -hmm. We saw that with the Bush administration with 9-11. That event transformed the administration when it was in deep trouble. Yep. Mr. Trump has set in motion a number of events. He's got a looming trade war with a number of countries. It's now taking place in a context where he will face greater scrutiny and more vocal resistance, I believe. And that could change the parameters of the debate in the United States. Um, it does have implications. We in New Zealand, and I think this is a bipartisan thing to say because I think National and Labour have pretty similar foreign policies. We have a Labour-led government at the moment. But Mr Trump has been attack directly attacking the national interests of New Zealand. He's been seeking to undermine the rules-based order. He's been seeking uh, to undermine, for example, an institution we always support, which is the United Nations, but he's also sought to undermine the World Trade Organization, which right. is a very important organization for New Zealand because it creates a more level playing field for smaller parties. We've been involved in six trade disputes since the mid-90s. We've taken to the WTO and we won every single one of them, including with Australia, a near neighbor. That's how we got apples 
into Australia yeah, after yeah. 80 years of yeah, trying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did it because we took them to the WTO. What he's trying to do is to dismantle. He makes no, he makes no bones about it. He's in the process of weakening the WTO because his view of America on the international stage is to remove international impediments. He'd rather be in a situation where there's no organization which upholds the rules for international trade, where it's a free-for-all, because the biggest can always look after their interests more effectively in a free-for-all than the smallest. So we have quite a lot at stake in this. We trade with more than 100 countries. It would be nice, from New Zealand's point of view, if Mr. Trump's instincts to dismantle the international rules-based order are restrained because the Democrats start doing their stuff in the House of Representatives. Very good. Well, I think that's a, it's an interesting place to leave it and to, uh, to wrap up with um, how it could affect us in the world. Professor Robert Patman, thank you for coming in. I Thanks. really appreciate it. Thanks, Pat. It's a pleasure. Coming in for a beer and a chat. That's well, what we do. Couldn't miss a beer. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you. All right, guys, that's us. Uh, stay tuned for new podcasts, new guests, new things coming up. Really enjoyed being at Ombrelitos today. It was good fun, actually, to be able to have a beer or two while we were talking. Um, I, I think Jace got through three or four. Maybe there'll be a, a, there'll be a few wobbly bits in this. Jace is responsible for the audio. Maybe there'll be a few slipped fingers along the way. I don't know. We'll check it out. Um, but check us out on Facebook. Uh, check us out on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher if you want the audio only. And, of course, we do have a YouTube channel where all the videos go to as well. Come check out our beautiful faces and we will see you next time on the department of conversation hey,